interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. One of the questions I have about brownies uh, is, uh, can they be sinfully delicious? And so, Bill, I didn't write that question down, but you, you feel free to answer that uh, whenever you want to. Okay. I, I'm just encouraged by the worldview that we are having presented to us. And I hope that as God's people, we can begin to, to see that culture is not an enemy. In fact, there are many uh, aspects of it that really drive us to the deeper understanding of the eternity of God. So let's pray together, and then we will uh, uh, turn it over to, to Bill. But before we pray, uh, I want to just highlight two or three things. One is, uh, you will notice on the insert, um, uh, one of the sheets that are loose leaf, uh, there is a description of our schedule, and we want to encourage you tonight to be back at, uh, not here, but down at the Women's Community Building for an interesting evening. Bring your friends. Uh, We hope to pack that place out. As uh, Bill and uh, Jerry Hilliker and Jerry's brother and a number of other um, fine musicians will, who have never played together. <laughs> don't tell them that. Uh, don't tell them that, Bill just said. But um, uh, they have a little practice, so that's good news. Uh, 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 and uh, just to talk about uh, Heaven in a Nightclub, the sense of jazz and the underlying messages of God's grace in the midst of uh, that um, milieu of music. So that's at 7.30 at the the Women's Community Building. Uh, So we hope to see you there. And then uh, you will also note in uh, in your handout that there's an evaluation sheet that we would like for you to fill out. Um, You can do that today. Uh, we would prefer it today, but if you want to do it tomorrow, you can bring it back to the welcome desk as well. And then tomorrow we have uh, the two services, 9 and 10.45, where Bill will be speaking at both. Uh, and the other really wonderful thing, right? Let me, um, let me uh, highlight this. Okay, um, on this kind of handout, you'll see that this is our 15th... Um, Institute, and then flip it on the back, and and you'll get a little history of the past institutes and speakers, and you'll see that over the course of these 15 years, from when Roger Nicole came back in 1992, uh, you just remember him uh, if you were around, as if today, uh, uh, all the way to this week uh, with Bill. It's been a rich uh, banquet of opening up God's Word and thinking God's thoughts 
And that's our commitment in these institutes, um, to, to kind of weave things together so that our biblical worldview will expand. And so we're really grateful uh, to the Lord for all of these individuals who have come. And we're grateful, Bill, for you to be part of us this, this time, this 2006-15th IBS. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, it is with a grateful heart that we have uh, been able to spend this time together. And for the uh, relaxation and the rest that we had as we shared around the table, we give you thanks. And for this opportunity to think about the, the large book of Revelation with all of the pictures and all of the music that so many, um, so many ways uh, reflect your sovereign power and uh, mysterious ways. We come to you and pray that you might enlarge our hearts and our hope because you are the sovereign one in whom we trust. In Christ's name, amen. Roger Nicole, we just celebrated his 90th birthday. Amazing man. What a monument. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. What is the book of the Revelation about? It's the one book of the Bible that Calvin wouldn't write a commentary on. And um, there are so many answers uh, to that question. One of the traditional answers is that it's a book about our own times at uh, kind of the popular extreme, you'd get this from someone like Hal Lindsey or R.H. Mounts. At other levels, you'll find scholars who sincerely believe that um, this is a book about the end and that the specific predictions in it reveal events that'll be close to the second coming of Christ. Um, critical times call for a critical wake-up they will say. There's usually a fascination with its numbers and its keys, but of course, uh, lots of flaws in that view. One of them is pretty obvious. Um, have the Christians in the church for 2,000 years had to wait until now, if this happens to be the, the last time, to profit from the book. Another is that it, that view can get us much too preoccupied with details and events 
and distract us from walking with the Lord. As a corrective to that, another view is very popular out there, which is that it's really about the first century, with very few implications for the times afterwards. It still holds to the history of it, um, but it's about Roman Asia, and it especially deals with Christians in those times being persecuted um, or being beset with various heresies. Of course, I think that has a lot more to say for itself. Still, many of the scholars, like M.S. Terry and others who would hold to that view, seem to me uh, bound to a, a bias in favor of realism behind symbols, which becomes a sort of a straitjacket. So as a corrective to that view, a third view is abroad, which is that the book of Revelation is about timeless theological truths. How to worship, how to face persecution. It's a key to the the Old Testament. Um, It helps Christians in every era deal with the basic issues of life. This is moving in the right direction. But does it sufficiently wrestle with the text as a text? Other views which try to wrestle with the text as a text will attempt classifications of its sections. For example, the scholar uh, Barr uh, believes that we have here three scrolls. The first three chapters are letters to the church, 4 to 11.18 is about worship, and 11.19 to the end is about war. How do we deal with these various views, and are they getting at the depths of what the book of Revelation is really about? I think we can do better. Now, perhaps we can do no better than a Sunday school student about the age of 10 who uh, not so recent, not too, not too long ago, um, was the class of being taught by a colleague of mine who was one of the world experts on the book of Revelation. He spent much of his professional life writing about it. So he was trying to explain the book to these 10-year-olds. And he, as, the, as they began the class, he said, uh, let me ask you a question. What's the book of Revelation about? And one little guy raises his hand and he says, Jesus wins. And this scholar said, you know what? (laughs) You've just saved me a lifetime of more work on this thing. Uh, I've never heard anything more profound. Um, That's pretty good. Uh, It's a book that says Jesus wins. It says it in a lot of ways that are opaque to some of us who are looking for more literal meanings. It says it with a certain amount of literal truth, but it also says it with literary truth. Uh, Gordon Campbell, one of my favorite commentators on the book of Revelation, likens it to literature in this way. In literature, just as settings change, characters evolve, and plots unfold, so also do themes develop. In arriving at a literary appreciation, all these aspects, each distinct and each 
irreducible must be given due weight. Now, the good news is that we have a lot more to discover about the book of Revelation. And um, that's good because it's one of those books that repays study and meditation richly. What I'd like to do with you uh, this afternoon is something a little different. Maybe something completely different. Which is um, to think about the relationship of music to theological books, to books of the Bible, and to see if there's anything in music that can help us to unpack the meaning of this enigmatic book. Now, just a couple of preliminary thoughts, and then we'll, we'll go right to the task of seeing how, what musicians have made of this. We often think that, and rightly so, that theology helps unlock the secrets of the arts. And um, indeed, without some knowledge of theology, you can't understand Bach, you can't understand Rembrandt, or some of the more uh, non-Christian artists as well. And, and, of course, God wants us to take the Bible and see how it fits as a worldview in every area of life, and that is a form of theologizing. What we appreciate less is something that um, Jeremy Begbie was mentioned earlier today is helping us to, to see, which is that the arts themselves help us better understand theology and even books of the Bible. How does this work? Well, because often artists deal with uh, these literary sensitivities, colors, volume, space, composition, melody, counterpoint, which is the way many of the books of the Bible work. The books of the Bible are not primarily theological treatises, though we rightly get our theology from that source. Um, even the book of Romans, which is one of the most theologically pregnant books of the Bible, is not merely a, a theological uh, thesis. Try outlining it or try outlining a lot of Paul's books. It, it works for a while, and then you get lost in the detail, because they are rather symphonic kinds of theology. So why not go to the symphony to see if there aren't any clues to the meaning of the Bible? So what I thought we'd do this afternoon is look at five examples from the art of music, um, some of them from the more art music or classical music tradition, some from popular music, and look at the way in which this particular musician and the particular pieces we're going to hear um, feel and articulate some of the meaning in the book of Revelation. Now, I'm not making up the preposterous claim that to understand the Bible, um, you have to be a musician or you have to be an artist. Um, but I am saying that uh, the arts has, have a way of sensitizing us sometimes to the way biblical writers work. And I think that's not a co coincidence. Because God, I say this reverently, thinks artistically. Um, I, uh, for Exhibit A, I offer you the creation of the world. Um, 
And um, he thinks imaginatively. Of course, he thinks prosaically as well, and uh, there's a rationality in God. I, I, I'm far from denying that. Uh, I offer Exhibit B, uh, the laws of the creation which scientists help us to discover. But there's no conflict between the rationality of prosaic thinking and the imagination of artistic thinking. Uh, indeed, most of the composers I'm about to mention were fascinated by the sciences and by mathematics, as well as masterful craftspeople. Let's begin with Johann Sebastian Bach. And um, I'm going to think of his approach to just one part of the book of Revelation as finding an encouragement for the church as it longs for the presence of Christ. That's a theme throughout Bach's compositions, the church's response in longing to the presence of Christ. Cantata 61, although not directly about the book of Revelation, certainly uses it extensively. It was written for the first Sunday in Advent. Curiously and interestingly, um, the gospel lesson is a, a Palm Sunday gospel lesson. And um, people have asked why. Probably the answer is that it deals with the humility of Christ who comes to Jerusalem on a donkey. And um, the emphasis in, in this uh, music that we're, we're going to uh, listen to in a minute is on the, is on the coming of Christ. Um, Notice how the key word here is on the coming. Uh, from uh, Revelation 22.20, Nun kom der Heiden Heiland. Now, uh, come. Uh, and um, uh, this church, the church is longing for Jesus um, to come in. Um, now, Bach does some interesting things here. Throughout four different comments on the coming of Christ. One, the historical coming through a virgin in sections one and two. Two, the coming into the church of Christ in section three. Three, the coming into the believer's heart in four and five. And four, coming into glory on the last day in section six. In all of these, uh, um, there is a, a, a movement of the church longing for Christ, but in fact, when you look at it rightly, it's Christ coming into the church on his own terms. Um, the first movement is in a style of a grand French overture with royal overtones. Christ is a king who comes to his people in a royal way. And then... Uh, the second is a dance-like movement, full of joy, yet with a special stress on Christ's coming in the flesh, which is indeed our flesh. The third is a warm composition, full of um, agreeable text, yet with a certain urgent invitation. 
And then in 4 and 5, he personalizes this with a text from the book of Revelation. Christ um, is asked to uh, come in and um, in the... uh, in the famous lines from Revelation 3.20, represented by the recitative here, Christ says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And then the aria comes in and says, Well then, open. Open my whole heart. And it's a beautiful uh, setting. The recitative, as you know, is a kind of half-spoken cantillation, which has a lot more text in it per uh, per measure. Uh, but here it's... um. Um, where he says, where the rest of the deep uses, behold, I stand at the door and knock. There's a kind of, you'll hear it, a knocking by the pizzicato, the, the plucking of the strings uh, in, uh, in using, reminiscent of sort of knocking, but also of a heartbeat and a fleeting time. Um, the epistle for that day was the book of Romans 13.11, which says, put aside the works of darkness. So there's a certain urgency to it. So the recitative has a warning as well as a promise. Judgment is coming. So invitation is needed. And then in this wonderful aria, it says, open my whole heart. Come in and reside with me and live with me. Come and sup with me. I'm only dust and ashes, yet he'll not despise me but he'll look with favor on me, and thus will his dwelling place be, and how blessed I will be. This is typical uh, pietist poetry that Bach loved to use from the tradition of German pietism, which every time there was a Bible thought or a theological thought, um, the aria and sometimes the, the chorus invite a kind of personalizing of this. If Jesus is knocking at the door, I've got to tell my heart to open up and, and receive him. And in, in the fifth section, there's a, uh, a rising three-note uh, motif that suggests opening up, perhaps running to meet the Savior. Usually, the, uh, unusually, the final chorale, which ends uh, many of his cantatas, is the last four lines of how bright appears the morning star, which is a parallel of Revelation 22.20. There's even the visual arrangement of the lines, this is what Bach loved to do, in the shape of a cup or a goblet. There's a descent and an ascent. So this is one of the windows on the book of Revelation from Johann Sebastian Bach, which stresses the longing of the church, and then Jesus coming, first knocking at the door, then being invited in by the church to be um, the guest, uh, though he is the Lord and um, the the ruler of the universe, he becomes the guest of the dwelling place of of my heart. And uh, the coming that the church longs for um, is, is thus not just this glorious, personal, and visible second coming at the end of history, but this personal invitation of Jesus. Come, fairest Lord Jesus. Come, fairest crown of joy. Wait no longer. Let's listen to the first three um, of these 
together. And uh, you'll hear the resident deep with the knocking and the clock ticking. You'll hear the aria. I'm, I'm cutting it off halfway because we don't have time. But um, that invites Jesus to come and dwell in the heart. And then you'll see the chorale ending, which um, reflects on the second coming of Christ uh, and uh, the, the full joy of a Christ who already lives in the church, but will live in it um, more fully and more richly forever and ever.